This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 696, A Conversation with Jerry Ordway. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 696. It's our conversation with Jerry Ordway episode. I'm very episode for uh, sorry, very excited for this one. I should say, uh, I was very excited to sit down with Jerry and chat his career in comics. Uh, we chatted for almost two hours, so this is definitely a, a very fun and enjoyable conversation. It's a long one, so hopefully you'll be able to uh, to listen to this over multiple uh, commutes or whatever the case might be. But uh, I really enjoyed sitting down with Jerry. It was such a phenomenal conversation. We're actually going to have him back, hopefully, in, uh, maybe in a couple of months. He had so many great stories that I, I feel like we, we didn't even get a, enough time to shine a light on a lot of the kind of more, not more interesting, that's the wrong word, but uh, and some of the stuff that we just didn't get a chance to talk about in his career. We didn't really get a chance to tap into his uh, his Marvel period, the Marvel period where he came back in the late 90s to Marvel and did a bunch of different projects. Uh, we didn't really get a chance to kind of uh, go into that. We did spend a lot more time in kind of his earlier days. We didn't even go through that much of his Superman stuff. We just kind of lightly touched on it. He's done a lot of work and he has, again, such a such amazing stories um, that uh, there was just a lot of we could have talked about and so uh, hopefully he'll be coming back uh, not too long from now uh, to have another conversation to really kind of go even more in depth I do want to thank some people from uh, the Marvel Masterworks Forum and beyond for submitting questions uh, for Jerry because uh, about an hour or so in I realized oh well, we haven't really done any listener questions we should try and do some of those as well as doing the uh, kind of moving through his career uh, so I want to thank Eric Anthony uh, for some people put in multiple multiple questions so I only picked one per person for now and we're going to go back and again uh, when we have Jerry back on the show we'll have uh, other people's questions as well so we have Eric Anthony I want to thank him for a question Curtis Finley Mr. Raffles from the Marvel Masterworks Forum uh, Jeff Dyer um, I believe Silver Age Marvel Man but if I didn't I mean, actually, it's possible I didn't ask, I didn't actually ask his question, but one of his questions was definitely answered. Uh, and Mr. Rouser name, I believe, as well. Um, I think I used part of your uh, question or part of your comment. So thanks so much for submitting those. Um, again, we're going to have back Jerry back on the show. So if you have other questions or uh, things you want to submit, please feel free to do so, and we will make sure we integrate them into the next episode. But enough of my yammer yammering. Let's get right into the episode. But before we do, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. And without further ado, let's jump right into the episode with Jerry Ordway. One quick production note. This is no fault of Jerry's, but at times the uh, volume of the uh, recording ended up being a little quiet, so I do apologize in advance. For the most part, it does pick up fine, but there are a few points where it's a little extra quiet, so I do apologize uh, for that. On with the show. Jerry, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you this evening? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm doing good. It's very hot here. I don't know where you guys are, but in the uh, Northeast, we've been uh, kind of sweating. <laughs> yes, it's been very hot. I'm, I'm in Toronto, so it's uh, a little bit more north of you, but it's been, uh, today especially, it's kind of been a weird day where, you know, we had a lot of rain, and then it was really humid and hot, and then it kind of cooled off, and then we had an absolute outpouring of, of rain, just for just just long enough for when I needed to be walking to get my son from uh, from his camp, and then the minute I got there, it stopped raining, and I'm like, well, that's, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, that does happen. Unfortunately. So um, usually I like to kind of start with kind of going back and get, getting a sense of someone's history. But I also find sometimes that I forgot to I forget as I kind of move through someone's history that I forget to talk about something that's more recent. And so I did want to make sure that we talked first about um, your most recent work on Captain America and the Invaders Bahamas Triangle. Um, who kind of gave you the call to, to come work in, with Roy again? 
Um, I think yeah, I, I usually, well, I've been dealing with Tom Brevoort for the most part. And uh, I had, uh, I'd, I'd reached out to um, Marvel like last summer. Um, I, I, I sent a email to Sabolsky and just said, hey, I, I, you know, I always love the Marvel characters. I kind of feel like I was a little, I mean, my, my stint back in 2000, around 98, 99, 2000 was kind of short. <laughs> I didn't really get to do much, but uh, so I think maybe that just put the, maybe put my name back in his, uh, in his head or whatever. But Roy also suggested me for the uh, Invaders, the America story, just because we'd work together on All-Star Squadron. He, he obviously knew I probably still had all my reference for uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, when you do a story that's set in a specific time frame, it kind of helps, I think, to work with either somebody who already knows the, you know, knows the setting or, or is willing to, uh, to dig up reference. And I think, you know, in, in, in my case, I certainly... I still have all my books. I mean, most of the reference that I collected back in 1980, or 81, I guess it was, you know, I still have most of those books, so I could search through it. Now you have the internet, so you can search a little more. But, uh, yeah, so it was, it was you know, it, was, it seemed like that type of, uh, like maybe a combination of things. But I was happy to do it. It was really a, a fun story to work on, too. I'm curious when you come into a book like that, like you get to have a slightly kind of different version of Captain America to kind of play with, because not only is he not as confident, which you can you know obviously convey through body language, et cetera, but he's wearing the kind of the, the, the half mask. He still has the triangle shield. So what is that to kind of play with when, you know, it's not everyone's more typical version of Captain America to see on the page? Yeah, no, I, I think it was fun. Um, again, I think they've done, they haven't used the, you know the early early adventure stuff i don't think they've done a whole lot with it um I, again roy had this idea i mean I, what happens with with roy is because he's, he's such a history guy he finds some hook historically that he kind of hang his story on so i think what happened there is just that the timing with you know franklin roosevelt actually did have a fishing trip. I mean, he, you know, this is what, uh, these are, this is what makes a good story, basically, is that uh, it, it gives the story a little bit of, I think, extra weight when it has some real elements to it. So, I mean, in, in a case of doing a regular comic, the regular comic, I mean, when we did it, monthlies, we always tried to not be too specific because you never knew, you know, you didn't want to use right up to the minute slang because in three months it could be seem seem as outdated or, or what have you. So, but when you're doing a specific time frame like 1941, you know you you pull from things. And you know Roy had realized that Roosevelt had done a fishing trip, which was canceled due to weather, and you know the, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were in the Bahamas. You know, so there was the the backdrop of of Nazis trying to uh, kind of co-op the uh, British royalty even though he had abdicated the throne there was still that would have been like a good you know seal of approval for Hitler if he had gotten you know the the uh, uh, royal family to uh, to basically say yeah okay well we're, we're with you or whatever so that was you know kind of a, a good little real life hook even though um, you know we don't know what actually happened on that fishing trip. 
you know, it's possible Roosevelt just didn't get the fish, and it's possible he had an ulterior motive. No one knows, but Roy put that together in a nice way. Plus, it gives you the opportunity, I think, to to actually do a pre-invaders story with the uh, the three characters having a part in saving, you know, or guarding the president without actually teaming up necessarily. So that kind of preserves Roy's first issue of Invaders that uh, still exists in reprints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, I really, I mean, first of all, I did really enjoy the issue, and I, I actually did not know the historical context that it was actually legitimate stuff, so that definitely make, it flushes it out and makes it, like, it, it already felt so so real that the fact that you're telling me that it's actually based on real fact doesn't surprise me, because, again, it didn't feel like just kind of kind of put together. It felt more meticulous than that, which I'm not surprised, because it is Roy, and that's kind of his stock and trade, yeah. right? Yeah, and I mean, he did that with All-Star Squadron. There was fixed points that, you know, he used um, to, to as a backdrop to stories and to even to, to setting up events and things within the comics that uh, made sense for him. And again, I think that's kind of a key to I mean, anybody who writes a story, you can read stuff that sometimes it's just fun and like a throwaway adventure or whatever, but, you know, as a writer, you want something to have some kind of real hook to it, you know? I mean, it doesn't have to, again, it, it's not real life. These superheroes aren't real, but it's nice to have something that you can kind of push against that actually is does exist. You know, I think uh, those are always the best stories in a way, too, because a lot of times playing off of a historical thing or playing off of... I mean, for example, here's a, a good example is the, uh, the New Frontier that Darwin Cook did, you know? I mean, that was a terrific story that kind of bounced off of the, uh, you know, the Kennedy era, the the beginning of, or, you know, the early early NASA and stuff and kind of tied it into superheroes. So I think that, you know, lends a little weight to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a little social significance to it other than just being a comic book, you know, whatever, adventure with, no, you know, no stakes or whatever. I think uh, it, it adds a little bit. Artistically, I had a question, um, and maybe I'm just not remembering it, but had we ever seen Baron Zemo without kind of the, the purple headdress before? Like, or was this a new design for what Heinrich no, Zemo actually looked like? Yeah, no, that, and it's funny because, you know, again, Roy, this is another detail Roy pulled out of, uh, out of Marvel archives, basically, is that he appeared in an early issue of Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos as Baron Zemo as a, as just a normal Nazi guy that um, I'm not sure the timeline within when that story came out whether I think Baron Zemo whether he had actually appeared already in the other current day Marvel stuff with the mask mm. but uh, but yeah he has a precursor it's like in Sergeant Fury number 4 or something like that I don't remember exactly but um, again that's kind of those are little fun things I I, I grew up with loving continuity in, in comics and, and uh, I, I think 90% of the appeal of comics from when I was a kid was that everything was part of this bigger story you know so I, I, I always like when, when a story can kind of pull elements together that you know even a, a modern audience might not remember you know it, again it gives it a little bit more like you find out oh that existed in the you know in an actual issue it, it adds a little bit extra fun, I think, to the to the story. 
A question about um, working with Roy on this book. Like how, I mean, obviously this isn't the first time you guys have worked together, but um, how did he, how did his script look? Like is he kind of more full script these days or is it a little looser? Did you guys kind of talk about it beforehand or how did, what did your collaboration look like working on this specific project? Well, when we worked on uh, All-Star Squadron, it was Marvel style. And uh, he worked with Rich Buckler initially as the penciler, and I think Adrian Gonzalez was the guy who followed Rich before I did it as a penciler. Um, but we always worked with a fairly... It was a, a fairly loose plot in that it wasn't page by page. It wasn't broken down like, here's what happens on page one, page two, page three. It was more like an outline. And then as the artist, you would go through and try to break it, pace it out, you know, into 22 pages in your own way. Um, in this case, Roy actually did, it was still plot style, but he did it page by page, which was helpful because, you know, in that sense, he's able to pace it. So he, you know, uh, I also only had, I had, you know, here's five or six things on each page that I had to tell, um, you know, or whatever story elements that I had to put on each page. It was much you know, easier, but uh, I, I like working, you know, the old way as well. It's just the idea that you could maybe, you know, take a little extra space for something. If it didn't quite fit on page four, you could move over to page five or you could move stuff around. Um, there's always, you know, kind of fun as an artist to, to not be constricted too much if you thought something might need a bigger panel here or there. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was mostly pretty much the way we'd worked. Uh, I think. I don't know if Roy has worked full script with other people, but I've never worked full script with him. And that, you know, in this case, he was able to go back in and dialogue it pretty, I think he had to do it fairly quickly um, because he had been at different shows and, and all that. But um, it, it read really well. I was, I was very pleased. So, I mean, I actually first read the story outside of the outline and drawing the pages the actual printed comic um i first saw it with the, with the word balloons on it at that stage after it came out so it was fun to read it like kind of almost as a fan mm -hmm. and uh, and find that it held together when you were working on it so obviously it's, it's an interesting story in that you know it's it's branded invaders but really like you know the core kind of of the trinity of the of the invaders never really meet each like i mean they meet each other but not in their kind of uh, caution personas which is obviously a nice touch uh that roy did to kind of keep his own continuity still makes sense um for you approaching it, I mean, which of the characters did you kind of enjoy digging into? I mean, Namor maybe didn't get as much of an appearance as the other two, but uh, which of the characters did you really enjoy kind of sinking your teeth into? I had it. Well, I I actually found it fun to to do the Human Torch, but I, I did like Namor as well. I don't think I'd done much. I, I worked on the Fantastic Four briefly with in two different times: one inking, making burn, and then one time penciling a couple issues after John left. So I kind of have drawn a human torch, but uh, it was fun to do the original guys, you know, and, and like with Namor, you know, trying to evoke a little bit of the kind of triangular shaped head that Bill Everett had given him since, again, this is all at the, the beginnings of all those characters' careers in the comics. Um, it was fun. I mean, it, it, you know, I don't really, I don't think there's any one character of, oh, gee, I wish I'd gotten to do this or that. Um, but it's always fun to, you know, especially after years of doing it, it's fun to do something and actually say, wow, that's the first time I did this or that's the first time I drew whatever, you know. I mean, it's a, it, a lot of times you, you wind up in the same, doing the same type of thing, so it's fun to do. A, I, I enjoy doing period stuff as well because I think, 
it's harder to keep up with all the changes, you know, to try to reflect the uh, current day in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've drawn any backgrounds with cell towers in them or what have you. I don't even think of that, you know. So in a way, I'm, I'm, when I when I think of 1940s, I'm going, yeah, I'm, there's none of that. <laughs> there's maybe wires, <laughs> telephone poles, whatever. But you don't have to worry about people with... Uh, any any electronic devices on them or what have you They'll, they might have a watch on but that's it <laughs> question about the human torch i mean you bring up obviously it is jim hammond as an artist do you approach like the way you would kind of draw jim hammond differently than you would draw johnny or is there anything kind of in your mind that you kind of think about to make sure it doesn't look like that human torch or is it just kind of the, end up being the same visual yeah no i look at the i would i went back i had some reprint stuff from the uh you know, beginnings of the Marvel comics. So I was looking at some of the reprints and seeing how they how they drew him. You know, initially it was it was mostly just a big kind of flame shaped or a guy shaped flame. You know, it was more <laughs> like it. Um, and I, I just tried to throw a little more detail into it, just so uh, that's just me. I, I don't think I could just draw an amorphous, an amorphous kind of flame. I. I did try to do a little bit, uh, a little bit of, a, of facial features and things like that, but you know, so much is nowadays handled in color. I was not even sure if the, the color artist would wind up throwing a, an actual flame effect or something onto it. So mm-hmm. I mean, you really don't know. And I, I thought the color was done nicely, and the, the artist was good. He didn't over overshadow anything. I don't think with uh, with that. But you know, that was always a, a risk in the. Uh, especially in the, uh, I guess, 2000s when people started pasting in, you know, pictures of things, you know, like here's a picture of the sky with clouds or here's Mm. a picture of water and waves or what have you. I think the, you know, that always seemed to take away from the line art, I I always felt. So, but yeah, no, I just, I I just stylized, basically looked at what was there in the original stories and tried to kind of do my own thing with it. But, uh, yeah, like I said, it was really it was fun to do that type of character, and I, I did I do think it would be fun to do an invader story with it, actually with, with all the invaders because I don't think I've uh, I've drawn a lot of those characters, but you know we'll see. I guess if, if this thing sells or if Marvel has any other interest in doing it, it would be fun for sure. Now I want to go back way back to kind of your beginnings. So when did comics first kind of enter your life? I'm guessing relatively young, like most people. <laughs> Yeah, when I was I was really little, <clears throat> I, I do remember. It, I mean, I think in our household there was still this has been like early '60s. I was born in in '57, so you know I have conscious memories from '61, '60 even. I remember watching Twilight Zone when I probably shouldn't have <laughs> on Friday <laughs> nights, things like that. But uh, my mom was 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 still I think cognizant of the comic. The Frederick Wortham, you know, comics are bad for for kids, kind of thing. So, I, I do recall like times when I was little that I was only allowed to buy like, a funny animal comic, which meant you know it was a Dell Dell comic that maybe had Woody Woodpecker or something like that. Um, and I, I I'm at some point maybe when I was five, four or five, I guess uh, a family friend gave us a bag of of really beat up comics, basically passed down from someone who enjoyed them thoroughly before and uh, so I had a bunch of DCs in there they were mostly Superman Batman you know 80, the, whatever they used to do the 80 page giants or whatever the 
with even older reprints and things. So I know I was exposed to those stories, but uh, I don't really feel like they made a, a big dent. So I think my really tried and true nerd <laughs> comic fan day happened when uh, when I was probably nine. Uh, it was probably after the Batman TV show. Okay. And around the time when the Marvel superheroes cartoon was on in syndication, it was on uh, like after school. I remember running home to to watch the Marvel superheroes specifically, and those were done kind of from the comics. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very limited animation, somewhat similar to what Flash animation was like, I guess, when it was first you know developed. Um, kind of just mostly still pictures with some moving element or whatever. Uh, but they were. The, the voice acting was great, and they, they definitely hooked me into Captain America and, you know, uh, Iron Man and the Hulk and, and those characters. So at age nine, on a train a tra- train trip, we were going to, to my brother older brother's graduation. My mom had my brother Joel and myself. She gave us a dollar and said, buy something to read on the train because it's a long train ride. So we spent our dollar, we found Marvel Comics at the spinner rack, and it was the first time. We had no newsstand or anything in our neighborhood, so it was the first discovery at this train station, you know, comic rack, where all these Marvel Comics with the characters that were in the cartoons. It's like, oh, I didn't know there were comics of these guys. <laughs> so we, we wound up buying Tales of Suspense with Iron Man and uh, Captain America, you know, uh, Tales to Astonish with the Hulk and, and Submariner and... I took a chance on Daredevil because I thought it was interesting because he was being unmasked on the cover. I thought that was interesting. And Spider-Man number 50, where he's walking away from his costume in a garbage can. Those were my first. uh, And, uh, you know, I just, I think my brother and I, my brother Joel and I both like, we also like Thor. He was a big Thor fan. But at a certain point, maybe after a year or two, he kind of, he was, you know, two years older than me. He kind of got off of comics. He, He gave up on it. But I stuck to it. So, um, you know, since 1967, I'd say I've been a pretty much was a Marvel maniac. <laughs> so, when did you decide, or when did you realize that you know you had talent as an artist, and maybe you could you know somehow crack into this crazy business? Well, I don't think I really. As a kid, I didn't think I you know I had no way of knowing if I could do anything. I mean, I, I think as a kid, you don't look at things in kind of the same terms as when you're adult looking for a job I just thought hey it would be really cool and I'd always been I'd always I really had always drawn um, but once I saw the superhero stuff and like the Batman TV show got me drawing Batman stuff too I, I, I have to say but um, I started drawing my own versions of Marvel comic little stories again at age maybe 9 or 10 and then I remember showing them to family friends and they'd say oh is that your character no no this is a Marvel well why don't you do your own characters and so I started creating my own dumb characters and and drawing my own comics and I did that through you know from I guess up through high school I was doing that and uh, by high school age I was I was kind of into fanzines which was all mail order stuff Um, you'd make connections with people just via writing a letter or somebody doing a fanzine and um, I started doing that and I I published two issues of my own fanzine OK Comics in uh, 1975 and then 1976 and uh, you know it was something I just did so I I wound up trying to get work at DC Um, 
I went up to DC and Marvel in, I think it was 1977, and got turned down, and came home a little frustrated from, you know, New York, and uh, I wound up uh, working, getting a job in commercial art. So I worked at a commercial art studio and kind of apprenticed and ran the stat camera and, you know, the photo department, things like that. And, uh, you know, little by little, all there, I wound up doing at a certain point because I went in there with comic samples. I really didn't. I, I'd gone to a, a technical high school with, which had a commercial art program, but I hadn't gone to college, so I didn't know what you'd bring as a portfolio. I just had some drawings, and I had comic stuff. And uh, so these guys that hired me, they always remembered that I liked comics, so they suddenly said, "Hey, we have a client that." Western Publications was, you know, in nearby in Racine, Wisconsin, and they do coloring books. So we're going to try to see if we can get you to do some coloring books. So that was a way to use my superhero comic talents, I guess, to uh, to their benefit. Hmm. So I wound up doing a couple of coloring book sets, which then, you know, I used those samples um, and took them to Chicago Comic Con in 1980, summer of '80, and. Uh, I showed him to Joe Orlando, and Joe Orlando uh, almost <laughs> sent me home packing. <laughs> he was, like, really tired. <laughs> he kept looking at the uh, drawings, and these are drawings done for, like, activity and coloring books. So it was a Wonder Woman drawing, and instead of the stars being on her pants, the stars were in the sky because the activity were, for the kids was to find Wonder Woman stars, and then they would color the drawing or whatever. So he's looking at these drawings and he's totally confused. Like, I don't understand. Why are why is Wonder Woman not, doesn't have any stars? Where? And then the other one. Why is the Joker trying to you know lasso somebody or whatever? And I was like, no, no, these are for. And he, I just I was seeing you know this moment go away. And uh, meanwhile, Paul Levitz was Joe Orlando's assistant. Paul comes up to him at the end, and again, it's like towards Joe has been doing this the whole day in a hot room and looking at people's portfolios and he's you know just punchy so paul comes up to joe and he said look joe you haven't had a break all day let's we're going to take a break we're going to go to dinner and paul looks down at my samples and he goes oh jerry Edway, nice to meet you we've been trying to get a hold of you and i was like what what <laughs> so I did, what i didn't realize was that paul levitz was the uh was the contact point for Western Publishing when they when I did my drawings? Western had to submit them for approval by DC. So Paul had seen my drawings come through, you know, with that. But again, no way of contacting me because I was working for this uh, full, you know, this art studio. So it was just kind of a, a weird, funny coincidence. But it was, <laughs> it was, it was it makes for a good story because again, Joe, I don't think Joe would have hired me because I think he was too confused by the by this. <laughs> <laughs> so I came away from that Chicago Con 1980. I came away from that with, you know, the, oh, we're, we'll call you, we'll send you a job. And I was working full-time at this studio, so I was working 40-hour weeks, and I was not really looking to get out of commercial art. But uh, I got a job. I think the first thing was a short story that Carmine Infantino had penciled. And I inked it. It was called the Lazarus Effect or something like that. And uh, quite challenging because I, you know, respected the fact that Carmine was a, a comic book god, but also his pencils were really hard to to figure out because there was no black in them. They were just very, very linear, very stylized. And uh, I didn't know how much of myself to put into it. You know, I mean, nobody gives you like a little 
booklet and says, here's how you ink. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd always pretty much had inked my own work. So that was my experience with inking. So uh, I did the job, hoped for the best, sent it, mailed it back to DC, got a call, said, hey, everything's great. We're going to send you another one. I think I did a War of the Time Forgot story with the dinosaurs in World War II. Um, it was uh, maybe a 10-page story. I, I want to say it was drawn by Bob Hall. I'm pretty sure it was. And, and uh, I did that, and then I did a, I think I did a Joe Staten, you know, dinosaur story. A bunch of short, like they were mostly the War of the Time Forgot. I think I did several of those. Mm-hmm. I did one over Dave Cockrum as well, too, which was kind of cool. Um, but uh, meanwhile, I'm still working a full-time job, and it was really hard to get that, you know, it's hard to draw or ink 10 pages in a two weeks' time when you're working a full-time job, but I did it. And at a certain point, they asked me if I wanted to do Teen Titans, and I, I was like, uh, no, I can't do a full-time, you know, a monthly comic. And I said, I thought you already have an inker on that. Oh, well, George doesn't care for the inker on that. And I was like, well, no, I really can't do it. And that was like October. And then in November, I got another call and they said, we're doing a new book. It's All-Star Squadron is the name of it, but it's gonna be written by Roy Thomas and it's drawn, penciled by Rich Buckler. And I was like, wait, Roy Thomas? That's big because I, I was a huge, huge fan. I mean, the, the Avengers was like my favorite book. And I loved what Roy did with the Avengers, with the vision and with, it was just, you know, that classic period that he uh, he created uh, and and just did this had this tension in the book with these characters fighting and great John Buscema artwork and everything. So I was like, gee, that's a tougher decision. And I really had to think it over, and I wound up just okay, I'll I'll do it. And then I had to quit my regular job and basically take a pay cut until I could uh, figure out how to do it and do more work, I guess. But uh, that was 1981. February of 1981, full-time freelance to this day. <laughs> wow. I have a question. So, I mean, again, when you first kind of are submitting samples, obviously you're, I guess, thinking you're going to be a penciler, and then you start getting these inking gigs. What, what was your kind of first impression when that's what the offers were, that they weren't for actually penciling, but they were just for inking yeah. over others? Well, I knew I, I knew I was going to pencil. I mean, I, I, I knew that was my goal. Um, so I knew this was basically of a way to get my foot in the door and I mean from the time I started even you know with the pencil with the inking stuff I was asking for penciling work and um, at one point I think one of the earliest things they'd given me a um, what was it it was uh, for ghosts which was an anthology magazine I got like a four page I think it was a four page or five page story called at the Hollywood Deli which weirdly enough also required me doing real life people because it, the Hollywood deli was basically had the background of the deli was pictures of stars like old time stars so Jack me and Cary Grant and all these people were in the back background and uh, it was written by Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn who were a very popular writing team at the at the time at DC and uh, that was going to be my my penciling debut it was only a four, four short you know four short pages or whatever but uh, mm-hmm. I worked on that in between All-Star Squadron was a long I think it was like 24, 26 pages long those issues were actually kind of uh, big you know content wise that's a lot of pages uh, to ink and then I still was getting some of these I think I, I started getting Huntress backups to ink 
with the promise that when Joe Staten quit that I'd get to pencil that. Um, so I always had that in mind. I mean, I, I, I was a little miffed in a way, but I did understand. I think my, uh, my, my technical skills with a pen and brush or whatever were probably better than my drawing skills maybe at the time. Although I think, you know, I don't think they were terrible. I think I could have been a penciler, but I think what happened was that during that time they had a lot of people who could do rough layouts and they didn't have a lot of people who could do finishes. So that was where I guess I fit in. And the same was John Beatty had gotten work at DC in that same kind of vein with the idea. And I think prep reading as well. The around 1981-80-81 was the idea that there were, you know, someone could do rough pencils or a little bit sketchy pencils and, you know, these guys could tighten it up and finish it, you know. So it was like a different skill other other than just being a good technician. You had to know how to draw a little bit, so. Mm -hmm. When you do transition over to doing pencils on uh, on All-Star Squadron, I guess the first two issues I think you inked yourself, um, and then you had, I think, Mocklin came on afterwards. What was that yeah. process like to be able to actually do both and then switch back to having someone else add the, the inks? Was that more born of time, or how did that come about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it was, I think, by, by penciling and inking it. We didn't have an inker, basically, because I was replacing myself. <laughs> because I had been inking it. So it was like, you know, they didn't have an inker, and I know there were, Roy was trying to f- figure out who to get and how to, you know, maneuver it. So while that was happening, I was kind of penciling and inking those first two myself. I don't think it was ever going to be like, yeah, this is going to happen, because I knew it's a little bit too much for a monthly book to do. I, I always came out at a little too much, you know, like maybe instead of a, four weeks, it would take me five or five and a half weeks. So I knew you can't do that on a monthly schedule um, and I had given him um, Mike Macklin's uh, samples because he and Mike and I had done a lot of work he'd pencil something and I would ink it and I'd pencil something he'd ink it just for fan stuff you know for the comic buyer's guide or wherever so Roy had liked Mike's look and he thought that also fit really well on that you know 1940s set comic book that it had that clean kind of Joe Sinity style you know mm-hmm. Um, so I always knew that was gonna, that transition was going to happen. I just uh, it was you know really a case of kind of doing it myself until we could get get uh, Mike. And Mike was also somebody who had to quit a regular job, so he had a full time job that he had to quit to go freelance. And you know, there's a lot of I think when you do that, you do have <laughs> you have more soul searching because it's different. I think with someone who gets a maybe gets into comics when they're 19 or 18 or something when you really haven't had any real job experience of, you know what I mean? You might have worked at a part-time job or something, but when you work a full-time job, you get used to those regular paychecks. And it's hard to, to suddenly go, wait a minute, I'm going to get paid by the piece. Can I, can I pay my rent? You know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it was a nice, tra- it was a good transition. And the fact that Mike and I were both, we we're friends and we, you know, we both lived in the same know city we were both in milwaukee at the time in wisconsin so it was a you know kind of a no-brainer um Hmm. that's kind of how how infinity inc came about when we did when we were after about a year or so doing the all-star squadron together then the idea of doing a creator owned or a partial creator owned book was really appealing so mike and i were you know like perfectly suited to throw 
drawing and character and costume ideas back and forth because we could do it right in person. You know, we, we developed all these various costume looks be, before we submit them to Roy, you know? I mean, there was a lot of back and forth and, and uh, it, was a, it was a really fun process, basically. Did um, when Infinity Inc. did come about? Like, oh, I'm just curious about the genesis of the book. I mean, obviously, you had been on All Star Squadron. Now this new book is coming out. Rory's going to be writing it. Were you kind of first on the list, or was this something that you talked about with Rory in advance? Like, how did you? How did this come about? Oh yeah, no. It was. I think you know. I think Roy was was. You know, if you're working with somebody like like in the, and you're having a, a, a decent relationship working with somebody, I think they also want to work with you. So. You know, it was kind of a natural process that it would be a step up from All-Star Squadron in that we'd have equity in these characters. So that was like a, you know, that was a big thing back then. I mean, I guess now with the, uh, you know, a lot of creators owning their own characters and things like that, it's, it's gotten a little bit more, I don't want to say easy, it's never easy, but um, it's a little more widespread that you can actually, you know, come up with a concept and do a book and maybe actually make a living off of it. Back then, there really wasn't a market for that to actually make a living off of these books. You really, you, the best you could hope for and the step up was to create a character that was new that you would then own a portion of with DC. And that's, uh, I mean, that's a genesis for a lot of these things that um, I, I still, you know, I, something shows up on TV, some character that... I had a hand in creating or co-creating. You get a little bit of money for for any use of uh, a character as a toy or in a movie or or what have you. The TV stuff doesn't pay that well, but a big movie you can get a, a, a nice you know paycheck for them using one of your one of your creations. Um, so that that was kind of new at the time too, and that's something that I think guys like Roy and uh, Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman and you know there were these were guys who came over from Marvel and, and DC, I think, offered a lot of incentives because they came over from Marvel. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like DC was looking for that new blood and they were hoping to, you know, sell more comics. So they figured having, having guys who sold a lot of comics at Marvel was, was going to be a good thing. Let's offer them a little piece of something. So it, it, that was a big difference between Marvel and DC back then, is that DC did not offer equity in these characters. Whereas Marvel, I mean, I'm Marvel did not offer equity in these characters, whereas DC did. You got a piece of paper that said, you know, you get either share or if you create it yourself, you get 10% of whatever licensing um, or merchandising fees are are gotten from this. You know, that Mm -hmm. worked out well for Mike Grell. Mike Grell made some good extra money when the Warlord characters were in uh, that He-Man toy line. Oh, yeah. You know, it was stuff like that was like we'd all look at it and go hey this is better than just the page rate because it's almost like you're gonna you know you could get found money later on if, if something shows up in a movie or but most mostly we thought of toys because there weren't any real comic book movies to speak of it wasn't a thing then but you know there were certainly toy lines and the toys were fairly lucrative if there was a successful toy line which you know for example that He-Man line was, was huge and uh, by virtue of man they sold a lot of warlord toys and they sold you know each one of those characters had to be licensed from dc and mike Grell shared in that licensing so that was that was like the uh you know really big thing for especially a young guy like me to see that happen in comics because previous to that all you heard of 
about was how Jack Kirby was screwed or, or Siegel and Schuster were screwed or any number of guys who created the characters that are still the basis of uh, selling comics were screwed. You know, it's nice that in that age, in the 80s, that suddenly they were paying royalties. That was something that never existed really before. There was royalties on, a, on, on you know, profitable comics. Mm-hmm. There was uh, character equity for uh, things. They gave you reprint fees when they republished something in a book form or what have you. You know, those were all like, I think, things that, uh, you know, we all fought for. And uh, were, they were definitely like the thing that made, the, to me, that made the 80s different than most of the other eras of comics before that was that we all felt like, hey, we're our status is is uh, moving up a little bit you know we have a, a little bit of a shared a shared stake in this stuff mm-hmm. <clears throat> so and it, infinity inc was part of that whole wave because dc had just started the direct only line where the they were going to be only sold in comic stores and uh, there were no you know newsstand returns so whatever they sold they knew here's where their profit's going to be they would pay you a royalty that instead of waiting six or eight months for a royalty on a newsstand comic they can pay you a royalty on a direct direct sales book in three months because they, there were no returns hmm. so there were a whole bunch of things that uh, you know the fact for me as an artist it was that, that you had full bleed you, your pages could bleed off the edge that was a big thing you were printing it on, on good paper that wasn't you know the printing process was going to be was, the stuff was going to look good you weren't going to lose line quality because of the newsprint or the uh, the old print uh, printing presses that were breaking down. Um, so it was all, you know, it was kind of like a new way, a new wave, a new uh, new era in comics. You know, it was just very exciting. So I'm curious during this period. I'm so obviously like you you keep doing covers for All Star Squadron. You're working on Infinity Inc. So at what point did the phone ring and you got tapped to ink over John Byrne and Fantastic Four across the street? Well, I had been work. Um, I guess at some point in maybe '82 or '83, I started basically writing like pen pal letters back and forth between me and, and John Byrne. And uh, I can't even remember how I got his address. I mean, it's possible I got it through the Comic Buyer's Guide or something. I mean, anyways, I started writing him, and, and you know, we just wrote nice little short one-page things back and forth and I think that kind of put me on his radar to a degree as well and I know that Mark Grunwald at Marvel Mark knew me because I'd worked on his fanzine um what the heck was it uh, what was it called I can't think of it but anyways he had he had done like a professional fanzine after he had got been at Marvel and um so Mark knew me Mark knew my work I, I found all this out kind of after the fact. I, you know, you think you're when you're working at a company, you feel kind of like you're in the almost like a in a closet somewhere, and nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody, you know, you just because there wasn't the same feedback. You'd go to a convention once a year, maybe mm. to a, a show, and you'd get some feedback from fans, but there was no, there wasn't a big way for people to. Hey, I, I lived in Wisconsin, so I didn't. I wasn't in the offices, so I wasn't getting feedback like, oh your work is good or we like it or you're a popular artist or whatever you don't I wasn't getting any of that and I was working exclusively for Roy which kind of and shuts you out of the rest of the DC universe because then you're only working on books that Roy controls which was mostly Earth 2 mm. so um, 
while I was doing that and I was doing Infinity Inc., I was kind of feeling left out, um, honestly, because Roy was the writer and editor, so I had no wider DC exposure anymore. I mean, once Len Wein was the editor of, of All-Star Squadron when we first started, after the first maybe year or a year and a half, Roy became the writer-editor, so everything was centered in California where he was at. So I felt like my New York connection was lost, so you know, in a way I was like thinking, gee, I'd like to do a Batman story, or I'd like to do something different. Mm. But the avenue wasn't there because, you know, it was almost like I was working in a in an enclosed environment with him, with Roy. So when Byrne reached out, um, and he just, he and Grunewald had, apparently were gonna do Squadron Supreme as like a 12 issue maxi series or whatever. And uh, Byrne said, hey, I would like you to do finishes on it or inks. And uh, I was kind of, eh. And he said, well, come on, you know. And, and basically it started thinking about it. And I was thinking about feeling a little isolated just in the corner of the DCU. And uh, I thought, well, it would probably be less offensive to Roy to actually quit and go to Marvel than it would be for me to say, Roy, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some other DCU stuff. <laughs> you know, so I felt like it was an easier, an easier breakup, I guess, if you want to put it that way, to to actually switch companies. And uh, I also had one other thing, which was a dumb thing, but because I had been penciling and I was doing all Search Squadron and Infinity Inc., I had asked them for a raise. And uh, it was just kind of funny because I wanted a certain amount. I don't remember why. I, I think I found out somebody else was making like, whatever it was, $99 a page or something. So I thought, you know, that was my goal. Then I wanted $99 a page, and DC wouldn't give it to me. And, you know, that's their business. They can say yes or no. So conversely, Marvel said, sure. <laughs> and Marvel said, we'll not only give it to you, we'll, we'll up it by a dollar, we'll give you $100 a page. So I was like, whoa, okay, that was easy. Um, so when I did, you know, I finished my obligation to Infinity Inc., um, which was basically 12 issues, and they did include the first two All-Star Squadron appearances and the annual as part of that. So I wound up doing the 10-issue storyline, and then I did covers for that after I left as well. But uh, but yeah, I jumped over, and, and in the meantime, like I said, I was all set to do Squadron Supreme, and then I got a call from Byrne, and Byrne said, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. And how would you like to think Fantastic Four? And I was like, oh, so I assumed that the book was not happening. I, I assumed that they canceled it or they just, it wasn't going to happen. And I'm thinking, oh, sure, I'll do Fantastic Four. That sounds like fun. But I'm only going to do eight issues because I don't want to be back to being a regular inker. I, would, I don't want to lose my penciler status. I'll do eight issues mm. and or six issues initially, I'd, I'd, I'd said. So, you know, after I agreed to do that, I got a call from Grunwald and he goes, uh, I was going to ask you to pencil the Squadron Supreme, and he said, but Burns already got you inking Fantastic Four. And I was like, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was just like a weird timing thing. I, did, I honestly thought that the project wasn't happening because I thought, oh, John's not doing it. It must mean that it's been canceled or something. So it was uh, amusing. But, uh, but so, yeah, the transition then, and the good thing about these changes is by doing moving to Marvel, and doing the Fantastic Four, my editor is Mike Carlin. So I meet Mike Carlin, and uh, he he called me up, and I said, okay, here's 
the only thing I'm going to ask of you is don't call me all the time. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I said, look, Roy used to call me all the time, and I did not mind it. Roy is a super interesting guy to talk to, but I didn't have a headset telephone back then. I would be, I would lose time, so I'd be talking on the phone with Roy like a couple hours a day, and then I'd have to make up that time by finishing pages somehow, either late in the night or whatever. Wow! So I said, I just, if I would like you to, I'll do this, but I really don't want a whole lot of conversation. And he just thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> He's like, sure, no problem. So I really didn't have a lot of contact with him during that time I was working on the Fantastic Four. Once in a while, we'd talk on the phone, but not like a lot. And, uh, you know, it was just a, uh, it was a fun experience. It was definitely, uh, I definitely felt like I was stepping into the limelight to a degree because the Fantastic Four sold, I think, 260,000 copies a month versus, you know, Infinity Inc. was, was selling around like 70,000. So it was a, a whole new big audience. And, uh, and that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, it's like I'm working on a book that everybody's heard of and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, while I, I'm, I'm taking over this thing, I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> going in. It's very interesting to me. No, please. Um, so I went from, while I was working on the Fantastic Four, DC had said, the minute I left, it's like, oh, we want you back, we want you back, and then they bumped all my my rates up to you know Marvel level. So it's like, if you guys had done this before, I wouldn't have left, you know. But it, anyways, so I started doing a, a tremendous amount of cover work for DC while I was in the Fantastic Four. I was doing like maybe probably four or five covers in a given month, which wow. was a lot, yeah. and uh, covers paid a little more too. So I wind up, you know, doing. A, okay with that but there's a whole bunch of covers of mine in that 1984 85 86 even here you know that that time frame uh, that i was doing and then they knew i was doing fantastic four for, for the six issues and uh at one point burn had asked if i'd stay on through the end of this one storyline so that meant eight issues and i was like sure no problem but then dc was like oh we'd like you to take over crisis on infinite earths and i was going to take over crisis as of issue six so it would do six to twelve and the timing would coincide hold everything fine six issue six that would time you know okay with you know maybe a little overlap with fantastic four but not horrible so then i also agreed to do dc presents annual that i was going to pencil so i was going to pencil a superman annual which was kind of cool and it was superman and superwoman and it was julie schwartz Anyways, I get a panicky call from DC and they say, we need you to start on crisis number five. And I was like, well, I can't do that. I still have Fantastic Four to do and I'm supposed to do this, you know, 40 page story for, for Julie Schwartz. Well, they need you to do it because if you don't do it, George is gonna quit. And I don't know how true any of this is because you know, you're hearing people want you to do something. They're gonna tell you what they, what, you know, whatever. So mm-hmm. George wasn't, happy with, I think, the fact that Dick Giordano wasn't inking it regularly. Dick really was overwhelmed. He couldn't do that and be an executive editor as well, so it was just a tough thing. So George didn't want to see a bunch of fill-ins, I guess. Maybe that's the bigger thing. So they really pressed hard, and I said, how am I going to get out of this DC Presents thing? Julie won't let me out. Julie's locked me in because that's the way Julie was. So they went to bat, and they said, look, 
Julie will allow that you can ink it. She won't allow you to, to totally back off of this, so you have to ink it. You won't have to pencil it, but you have to ink it. So that pushed the schedule back a little bit so I could kind of try to get Fantastic Four done and whatever. So anyways, when it hit, the one month, I had crisis number five. I had the DC Comics annual, the whole thing was like 38 pages or something of inks. And I had the last issue of Fantastic Four issue, my eighth issue of Fantastic Four to ink, all in the same month. That's a huge amount of work. <laughs> and I'm like, how can I do this? So I looked, you know, I, at the time I, we had a studio in Milwaukee and uh, at one point Mike Macklin was in it, Pat Broderick was in it. Well, now it was just me and Al Vey, and Al Vey wasn't really getting regular work. Al Vey was basically hoping to get regular work. And I said to Al, I said, look, if, you know, if you want, if you can commit to coming here and working seven days a week, until we finish this. I said, I'll take care, I'll buy pizzas, I'll buy whatever we can eat, we're gonna do long days and we're gonna stay late and all that, but we're gonna, we have to get this done. If you'll agree to do that, I'll pay you, you know, to do backgrounds and to fill in blacks and erase pages. <clears throat> and uh, he agreed. So we basically set a goal of doing like six pages or something a day, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. It was a crazy amount. We didn't hit it every day, but I think, you know, we did, on average, we did about four pages a day of inks where I would do the, all the main figures and whatever background was important. But if it was just simpler stuff, he would do it and I would maybe go over it after he did it and stuff. So, um, but uh, yeah, we got through that. And, uh, you know, once you do stuff like that, you know, even getting through crisis, all six issues or seven issues, when you get through those jobs, you feel like you're stronger. <laughs> like it didn't kill you. So the next time you get a really horrible you know, deadline assignment, you think, hey, crisis didn't kill me. <laughs> I'll survive this. <laughs> I'm sure it's what these guys, think about the previous generations who went through combat or whatever, probably had that same feeling. Like, you know, I, I stormed the beach at Normandy. I'm not going to have some, you know, middle manager give me a heart attack over something, you know. Because <laughs> those crisis issues were big, too. Yeah, they were 25. I think they all they were 25, 26 page long, and you know thousands of figures on a page. I mean, George put. You know, I, I can't overstate how much he did. It's not like I I didn't pencil that thing. You know, I mean, the work that he did on there is something only George can do. I mean, there's really nobody else who does what he does. You know, he can do so much story within a single page. Nobody can match that. I don't think anybody has. Even people like Phil Jimenez, who are kind of uh, big fans of George. I mean, Phil could never do that, even though, you know, I think he came close with Infinite Crisis stuff. Mm -hmm. There's still a level that George did that, you know, any any writer that works with George is going to look good because George can add tons of story, you know, in the in the space of, of a 10-panel page or whatever and still make it look interesting. For sure, uh, it's, it is very it's a very unique thing. I mean, you know, Kirby did uh, a tremendous amount of work, and of course, plotting and drawing and writing and all that stuff. But the specific type of thing that George does that fans love involves crowds of characters in costume, all identifiable. <laughs> you know, even if they're an inch tall, you can still read the costume details, and that that's a a very unique uh, talent, 
you know? Because um, his characters still act. You know, I mean, uh, and by acting, I mean, the, they're doing stuff in those panels. They're not just standing around. Mm. They're interacting with characters. There's, you know, there's a lot of acting going on in any given panel, and that's, that's a very... Uh, um, it's not a tough thing to do, but it's a conscious thing to do. You know, you're basically giving the reader added value. You know, the writer can write around crappy, generic um, uh, art, but when someone adds story value, it makes the writer look good. You know, mm-hmm. um, it just a like I said. You know, that's 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 the thing. And, and like Burn, Burn could do the same thing in a slightly different way. I mean, John would, you know, like with the Fantastic Four. He just had this. I mean, he did great, amazing things with story, but he had those characters just down. You know, I mean, nobody, I don't think, outside of Kirby and, and Stan Lee, understood the characters as well or could, again, take them through their paces as well as John did. Um, it was just a very unique thing, and I, I always felt very. Um, I was very lucky to be, even though I know I had talent, I was lucky to have work with both of those guys within that same kind of period of time it was it was definitely a good way to recharge my energy my batteries after you know penciling so that when i got back to penciling i definitely i think i learned from both of them you know little little bits and i think i influenced them as well um i know george has said said as much um that uh he definitely studied what i did on his his pages as well so you know that's a obviously a compliment that works both ways because I, I definitely uh, you know I it, it upped my my game a bit and uh, it was the right time for it for sure plus it was hard yeah <laughs> and I think stuff that's hard <laughs> makes you appreciate it a little more too you know uh, what was the conversation like so I mean after this period so you do Crisis which is an insane amount of work you're doing a lot of cover work and then you get tapped to be you know, the penciler on Adventures of Superman with Marv um, what was that conversation like and what was it like to know that like I get to be you know the homer of you know, of Superman like for like I'm, I'm going to be an artist well, on Superman again that was all part of DC trying to woo me back in the, after I'd left for Marvel the first time when I'd left for the Fantastic Four they started saying, we want, you know, we definitely have plans for you and, and we'd like you to do uh, Batman or Superman. So that was like a good thing to hear. It was kind of fun. And then as Crisis was playing out, the idea that they weren't able to quite pull off, but that they had originally wanted to do was to be able to launch the new versions of, of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman even, the main characters out of Crisis. Like, here's the new status quo. Um, so I was on tap for the idea. It was like I was going to do, and Dick Giordano had said to me, he said, well, Superman or Batman? He said, I think I think you're more of a Superman guy. And I just went with it. I didn't necessarily, I would have liked to have done Batman. But I was like, okay. I'm, I, I love Dick Giordano, and, and he was kind of like, almost like a father figure at DC to me. So it was like, yep, I'm with that. So I always knew I was going to be part of that somehow. Um, but again, it wasn't ready to, to, to go. So after Crisis, even while Crisis was, while I was still finishing up Crisis, I had um, lunches at the Chicago, I think San Diego and Chicago cons in whatever year Crisis ended. Was that 85? 
86, I forget when the final issues were being done, but anyways, I, I had lunches with Paul Levitz and he and I plotted out the next crisis, basically. It's going to be the next DC crossover. It was called Crisis of the Soul. It was going to be a 12-issue maxi-series, just like Crisis, and I was going to draw it, and I was getting to co-plot it. So that was, again, like another step up for me to be able to have my ideas thrown into a story and, and get credited for them. So we worked on this thing over that summer while I was still, I guess I was maybe finishing up the last couple issues of Crisis. I don't think they had come out yet, maybe. But it had to have been 85, maybe, that summer, working on it. And uh, so that was supposed to be ready to go within a couple months after Crisis, just to gear up for it. And we had a Bible written up. I'd done some character sketches of these, you know, basic, uh, the bad guy and, and what have you. And then it kind of fell apart. Um, it fell apart and the what it turned out was it became Legends. Mm. Um, but I was suddenly kind of where I was in a position of co-plotting it. Suddenly when they revamped it into Legends, I was nowhere in, I was just going to draw it. And I was like, that's not what I signed on for. You know, so I felt a little miffed. So I actually said, this is not the same thing that I signed a contract for. Carl Kiesel was even going to ink it. And Carl stayed on to do Legends. So anyways, I bailed on that. And Byrne had just quit Fantastic Four. So I knew Superman was coming up. I didn't know what I'd be doing. I thought maybe they'd have me inking Byrne for all I knew. But anyways, I had a pocket of time of maybe four, maybe four months or something. So... Mike Carlin called me up and he said, you want to take over, over Fantastic Four as a penciler? So I went, I actually called Byrne. I said, hey, would you mind? And I, we had a, a falling out or whatever. He said, no, no, it's nice of you to ask. So I, I drew, you know, um, two issues with Roger Stern and then one that uh, was the anniversary issue that Shooter had plotted and Stan Lee dialogued. Mm. I worked on uh, those three and then I was ready to, you know, of Superman starting up so it was all it's, a, it's weird to think back now how all these things fit together but you know basically you'd filled, I filled in those several months instead of doing the what became Legends I, I wound up back at Marvel for that short time and they knew it was only for a couple issues so while I was doing that I started seeing pencils for Burns Man of Steel and the plan wasn't finalized I still didn't know how I was going to fit into it except that they said yes you're going to be part of it so, first thing I heard, Andy Helfer is the new is the editor of this thing, and, and they're going to launch three books out of Man of Steel, and Byrne's going to do Superman, the main book, write and draw it, and then he's also going to do action comics, and you're going to do Adventures of Superman with Alan Moore. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, because Alan Moore, I was a huge fan of his, uh, his, not only his Superman, but his Swamp Thing and stuff. Mm. So, I was really excited and then when you know maybe a couple weeks more had passed it's like oh it's Marv Wolfman I was like oh wait what happened to Alan Moore you know (laughs) Um, so I was a little disappointed I I can't lie Um, but then you know I wound up meeting up with Marv and we we discussed what he wanted to do the book and all this stuff and, and so we just forged into it forged ahead and tried to do it more as a an homage, I guess, to the 1950s Superman TV show, which was a little, especially the first couple seasons were more crime-oriented, which seemed like a fun take on the character to kind of do that more street level uh, rather than, you know, 
space aliens and things like that. Mm. Um, but that's how that kind of came about. That's it was just a again, you know, you get curveballs. So I don't know if Alan Moore would have necessarily worked any better in that system with Byrne, but you know, I know it was hard with Marv because I think Marv was used to being the uh, the leader, and you know, John was certainly used to be the leader. <laughs> so is a little bit of a of a power struggle, I think, it, that uh, Marv wound up maybe losing or walking away from or whatever. But uh, but again, you know, things happen, and and you just roll with it, you know. How involved with the, the the plotting did you become when John Byrne started actually you know working on Adventures of Superman with you after Marv left? Well, I was you know the, the thing that was funny was I plotted um, or I should say co-plotted the second or third issue of Superman that we or the one that tied into led to Legends, which was Dark Side and New Gods. Um, I, Marv didn't want to, apparently didn't want any part of it or something, so I got the opportunity. So Mike Macklin and I, and Vey, we just sat in the studio and we started talking about ideas, and I just wrote out the plot for the whole issue longhand. I didn't have a typewriter. Mm-hmm. I just wrote it out, printed it out nicely, photocopied it, sent it to the editor, and the editor said, I gave it to Byrne. Byrne's going to you know rewrite it. You guys are co-plotters. And that was... You know, I think the third issue into the run with Marv, so that was kind of fun, but it was also a tantalizing tease because then Marv didn't really want a co-plot. So, you know, he, the, his, again, it's semantics, I guess, everybody works differently, but his, his version of co-plotting was the way he worked with Perez, which was they would talk on the phone and George would draw the whole story with little notes and Marv would add dialogue and Marv considered that co-plotting and I was like thinking well if you're co-plotting you should have to type something up <laughs> you know so <laughs> I said I'm not going to do the phone thing and and because I feel like that's even more of a burden than co-plotting you know that's just more than I can so I didn't do that but we wound up getting ideas in and, and I, I think I you know definitely put Gangbuster and uh, Jose Delgado and all those things in um, on my own, kind of, even though nobody seemed to want to do them. <laughs> I was just, like, persistent. And uh, and we found a way for him, you know, to, to fit in, I think, with all the crime stuff, and it made sense. So um, when Byrne took over, uh, I had already, by that point, I'd moved to Connecticut. So John and I would get together. I would go to his house, and we'd go to lunch somewhere, and we would talk about story or whatever. And he would type up something and I would adapt it and it was again a plot and so I would change whatever I you know I mean it was it was fairly free form and there were some issues where he was 80% of it and there were some issues where it was more 50-50 but uh, but it was good to finally again get credited for it and to feel like the ideas were being um, you know embraced so that was a step again towards uh, being able to write Mm-hmm. Again, when I was doing my own comics, even up and up until I got to DC, I was still doing, you know, the Messenger and things like all these different characters that I had. I was writing them as well. I, I always felt like, you know, I had ideas, and uh, I just didn't know necessarily. I didn't have a direct path to any of these things. So, uh, I think by virtue of working with John, and I did prove myself that I had good ideas. And uh, Mike Carlin recognized that. And uh, when 
you know, Byrne and I had a good relationship on the on the stuff, and we enjoyed. It was fun. It was really a great time. But then when John was done, he was kind of done. And uh, Carlin asked me if I had any ideas on who would write the book, and I gave him a couple of suggestions of people I thought would be good to work with. And uh, he just go, he just said, "Well, why don't you write it?" <laughs> and I said, "Uh, okay." <laughs> So, uh, I mean, he put me through the ringer, you know, I think I spent the first four months of writing with the feeling that I'm just not going to do, I can't do it, I just can't, you know, I mean, he was, he, he made critical comments and he was, you know, he was pretty much dead on. He knew exactly where, where I was going wrong and everything. And he gave me good, uh, good training, you know, he, uh, he had some things I'd never thought about, which was, you know, like you, you have to be able to fit your balloons into a panel <laughs> you don't want to overwhelm the uh the reader so there's like an optimal amount of space that a a balloon takes and uh if you have something that you can't say in in two typed lines on a script you have to make another balloon because it's just too much it's too much copy so i mean there were a whole bunch of things like that that uh, that I, I picked up on and, and they were very helpful hmm. so that was my uh my entree i just jumped into the breach you know yeah um sometimes that happens you're, you're the guy who's you know you're willing to go okay <laughs> you know and next thing you know you're 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 working on superman and as a writer it's like i was always totally aware of the fact that i was you know uh that was in a rarefied position you know to be able to write uh, a superman book because it's like a, a classic character you know mm -hmm. um Absolutely. So, but anyways, yeah, no. it, it was. It, it's all, all of it kind of comes about in an organic way, though, which was, I think, probably much easier than if somebody had just asked me, you know, write Superman, and then so, mm -hmm. somehow you have to come up with a an overview or something like that. It was all kind of organic, and it was easier to jump into because I'd already been working on the on the book for, you know, maybe two years almost at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, so it wasn't like coming in cold and like thinking oh my god I have to write Superman you know I already kind of knew the characters because I'd helped develop a lot of them you know and it was it was certainly a little easier way in I think um, but, for sure uh, to go back just for a second just because I, I want to point it out and again this is not meant to age you out too much but uh, the first issue uh, of any Superman comic I ever remember reading was uh, Adventures of Superman 442 that you did pencil uh, with uh -huh. Andy, Andy Kubert on inks and I guess Burn was still writing at the time with uh, the yep. dre with the Dreadnought character um, I think yep. I'll only ever made one or two appearances outside of this but uh, always meant a lot to me so it's exciting to be able to talk to you about <laughs> it were, I always felt like those characters were somewhat meant to be disposable you know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I don't think they were meant to be like recurring characters. They kind of had a, a very specific, both of them had the specific talents. For sure. You know, I think the Siphon was, was Siphon and Dreadnought. One of them like drained powers and the other one was just like really strong or gained the powers. I forget what it was, but it definitely didn't feel like a, a concept that they would be dipping into uh, on a regular basis. Although I guess the characters have appeared um, from the, from time to time, but uh but yeah, it was fun. And you know what's funny about that is that that was, I, I can very vividly remember that I got to draw, I think very briefly, I got to draw the Justice League in there. I remember drawing That's right, a, yeah. 
Aquaman riding on a wasn't he on a on a whale or something <laughs> something crazy. <laughs> that is right. I forgot about that, but yeah, no, they're definitely there. <laughs> and that was also the weird thing about that is that Byrne and I switched duties on covers. I did the cover for his book for Superman, and he did the cover for my book. So it was kind of like a a weird little, you know, I guess a fun thing. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know if I never thought of that. I guess that is true. Interesting. I wonder why did you guys do that? He just felt like he, he said, "Well, you know, because Adventures didn't sell as well as Superman, even though we tried to do. I mean, that's where we really started trying to do a overlapping storyline where the subplots and the side characters would have, you know, continuing threads through the book. You know, that that was kind of the beginning of that." Um, and the, the, his reasoning for it was that adventures didn't sell as well as Superman, and, and he thought that if we did more of that, that maybe the fans would buy both of the books instead of just mainly buying the one Superman book. Um, but the, the biggest problem was that Adventures of Superman versus Superman, we found that the Adventures of Superman book just didn't get in as many newsstand outlets as the Superman book. It's like the, the newsstand, the, the dealers or the distributors probably felt like, hey, we put our Superman book out for the month. Mm. So we really didn't, I don't think we got as, you know, we didn't get an equal footing in that newsstand. And at that time, you know, the Superman books, even with Byrne, they weren't strong in the comic market. They were, you know, he helped, I think, a tremendous amount in getting the comic stores interested in it, but it was still was a book both those books sold more on the newsstand than they did in comic stores so there wasn't you know whereas like some of the Marvel books they could be strong on the newsstand and sell maybe 100,000 copies but they'd also sell 150 in the in the comic stores and that's a, a more of a profitable you know that direct sale was more profitable so mm. um, it, just, it was just a thing that we lived with even after after John left I mean that was a, a unfortunate reality is that um, those books up until the death of Superman and even up in the death of Superman those books always sold better on the newsstand in that newsstand outlets because Superman was you know more a widespread name you know I mean people still bought those things in you know who knows maybe the Midwest or wherever there wasn't a lot of comic stores Superman was still a, a you know a, a, a he was still a seller, you know. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the DC. DC wanted, you know, the direct sales money. They didn't. They, you know, again with the newsstand, you had to print twice as many copies. You had to accept returns, so it wasn't as profitable because you're kind of losing your profit by printing overprinting the books. So they they really did the the old ideal goal would be to sell more of them in the, in, in a direct sale market because that's all all profit, you know. So. But uh, but we fought that. That was you know again that was the driving force for that whole time on Superman to come up with storylines that maybe would reach into the comic store guys' psyche, you know, and maybe uh, win us over there. And nothing we did. We got fan good fan reaction. We got good fan press reaction. But it just didn't change the the order numbers from the you know comic stores at large until after the death of Superman when all these stores had to scavenge copies off of the newsstands hmm. to sell, you know. So, so Jerry, I know we're... We we're, did finally we're, win. Yeah. 
I know we're, we're running a little bit over the time we originally had talked about. Um, so um, I had some listener questions come in when I said that I was going to have you on the show. Uh, could we do a few kind of lightning round questions and maybe sure. we can have you back in a sure. couple months? All right. Uh, so first from uh, Eric Anthony, he says, uh, what are the challenges? Well, this is a little bit broad, so you can be as, as succinct as you want to be. Uh, what are the challenges of writing characters like Shazam or Superman? Um, well, the biggest challenge with, with well, for super, Superman, the biggest challenge was the fact that you have a character that's been around and that's iconic. Um, you have to still find a way to make him vulnerable. That was my, I think, the biggest challenge that, that we had was to make him relatable and vulnerable um, because, you know, previous to the relaunch, he could push planets around. So mm. that makes it harder to, you know, figure out how do you how do you take him down, you know? So that's why there were so many brain-type characters, I think, in those in those early years, you know? Yeah, yeah. Rather than brawn, brawn characters, you had brain characters, but... Uh, with Shazam, again, it's Shazam. I think the most intimidating factor was that the audience had a kind of uh, time capsule view of the character, and you know, for the most part, DC when they'd done them too differently, people didn't care for it or it didn't sell. Um, so it was to try to find a way that I could live with that still had the charm of the old stuff or the you know the prime stuff, which would have been probably 40s and 50s so something that still had that kind of wide-eyed and maybe slightly humorous feel mm. um, but would be acceptable or palatable to a, a 90s audience at the time so those, that was the challenge you know I think I think I succeeded in that I mean I, I think you know it was successful for the time it ran and, and uh, you know I think that the version that version of the character certainly did live on after after my book was canceled and I think you know Jeff Jeff Johns did a good job with uh, Shazam related stuff in the JSA book and you know taking Black Adam in uh, kind of a linear path that it kind of set up in the Shazam as well having him become the leader of his own country and you know that was that was definitely something I did in the in the, the, the Shazam comic was the idea that like uh, Dr. Doom or Namor if he was the leader of his country or had some sort of standing as such, he would have some kind of diplomatic immunity. And that always appealed to me as a Marvel reader. It always cracked me up that Dr. Doom could wreak havoc and then he's like, hey, you can't touch me. And he'd walk away. And we're like, he's right. We can't touch him. He's got diplomatic immunity. I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I always thought that was very compelling to have a guy that, you know, you, the heroes would just hate because they like well damn <laughs> you know he just walked away <laughs> uh, let's see another question here um, this one's from Curtis Finley he said what is it about DC Comics that kept you working with them and why did you keep Marvel at a distance maybe this is just his impression okay yeah that's valid I think um, I DC was really family and it was really very much because I started with them that I always felt like, I mean, Dick Giordano, while he was there, was definitely, you know, I said father figure. He's a very, um, very nice guy, very endearing guy. And when I moved to Connecticut, I, you know, certainly had much more contact with him. And and Pat Bastine, Patty was the editorial coordinator, which meant that she assigned the work and every 
everything went through her office. Um, are you still there? Yep, still here. Yeah. Um, anyway, so she that was that was a big reason, and the Marvel characters always appealed to me, but I always felt like DC needed me more. If that makes any sense, I I mean DC was always like you know, whatever, Avis to Hertz or something, you know, we try harder, but they weren't number one. Um, so I always felt like Marvel had this, uh, you know, advantage, and I thought I could probably have more, I could do more good at DC than at Marvel. Marvel Marvel really doesn't need me. <laughs> DC, I felt like I could actually make a positive contribution. So um, that's pretty much it. I, I still love the Marvel characters. I just always felt like, you know, it really was, it came down to that moment. Marvel was always somewhat dismissive of DC and all of their activities, and, and uh, even to us freelancers going up to Marvel, even though I worked for DC, you know, they took a lot of shots at DC and, you know, why don't you come work for a real company and all this. There was a definite attitude that they had that was, we're, the, we're number one attitude, and, and it reminded me a little bit of high school and the, you know, artists versus jocks, I guess. <laughs> you know, the, the sports guys. Or, you know that was Marvel and DC was like the uh, the nerds. I always felt like that. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's and, I, and again, I worked with with people from both. I just always I think I felt for the most part I think I always felt a little closer to uh, to DC in that you know. Okay, I have a question from Mr. Raffles. First, he said uh, he wanted to start off by saying the Power of Shazam is one of his all time favorite graphic novels, and it cemented his love of the character. Um, cool. And then his question was, you often get to draw a lot of stories with Golden Age heroes like the JSA, Captain Marvel, and most recently a World War II era Captain America. Do you ever feel you never get enough, get to draw enough of the modern day characters, or do you prefer working with the classic setting slash characters? Um, yeah, I, I actually, I don't have a preference, but I do like the fact that these, the older versions have history to them. I mean, it's, it's maybe hard to put into words specifically but if you have like when I worked on Superman the first Superman stuff I did was in All-Star Squadron and it was the Earth 2 Superman who traces back to the beginnings with Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster so it felt like there's a historical weight to that and the JSA the same thing it's like these were the uh, you know the first generation uh, heroes there's something special about that but um I also, you know, again, I don't have a preference. I don't. I think it's just a, a matter of being able to <clears throat> the fact that I, I can draw, uh, you know, spe- specific time frames because I do my research and stuff like that. I think that I wind up getting thought of to do that type of stuff because I'm willing to look up old cars and I'm willing to look up historical things and fashions and stuff. So, but uh, but yeah, I mean, at this point, I think as an old guy, I feel like. I probably am more comfortable in past eras than trying to figure out what a Tesla looks like or what have you. But it's all just reference, you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to another question. Um, we have Jeff Dyer asked, uh, what, he was just wondering what it was like for you to see the Shazam movie take shape. I uh, said you met Zach Levi and the filmmaker seemed to be well aware of your influential run on the character. Did you spot any parts of the film that took inspiration from your work? And uh, where would you like to see them go with Shazam 2? Um, yeah, it, it was fun to watch it. I didn't really know what I was going to get. I, someone had mentioned I'd gotten a screen credit. I did not know what for. And I don't really even still know exactly, except that it definitely had a vibe from 
what I did in the 90s. You know, it felt like my the vibe of the Power Shazam series and the graphic novel grafted onto the kind of more dark New 52 thing, which is kind of what they're doing in the monthly book. So, I mean, I think they course corrected that that whole property in a way by, you know, doing the, the new comic, the new monthly series with a little bit of a, a little more whimsical or at least, you know, a nod towards that because I think the the new 52 stuff was a little too dark for my taste. And again, you can go dark. It's Everything's valid. And if you're, you know, doing a new version of it. But I always felt like the biggest hook to that character was that he was a kid looking through an adult's eyes. And I, again, all you have to do is think about how you were at whatever age, you know, 12, 15, 16, anywhere in that range. You really don't have the knowledge of what an adult life is like. You just have kind of maybe what you've seen on TV or whatever. So I think that, you know, there's a certain naive kind of quality that I, I think the movie played off of really well. Um, as far as like a second film, I kind of think that I'd like to, I'm hoping that they do bridge the gap and not have him just be the, I mean, he can't, you know, while it was successful to do that kid in an adult's body, I think they need to have him maybe physically tapping into the powers, the wisdom of Solomon and things like that a little more, or at least a, a nod to that, you know, so he's not just blindly jumping through stuff. Um, hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that it was really fun to watch the movie because, it, you know, I'd been defending it to people on Twitter <laughs> and social media for, you know, however long it was in production because there's just people who just want to hate something before, you know, before they even know what it is. It's like sometimes people just get it into their head that they're going to hate it, but then it's not like something they keep to themselves. They want other people to hate it as well. And I think it's very unfair to any creative person to have their work judged before anybody sees it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to sit in that audience and watch the movie unfold and go, okay, it, this is fun. This is good. Um, you know, it, 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 it surprised me in many, in many ways, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one thing to not like it. If something, you see something you don't like, it fine. But, but people seem really hell-bent on not letting somebody else like stuff. You know, it's like, I didn't like this, therefore you can't like it. And, hey, we all have our opinions, and we all have different top ten lists of favorite comics and favorite movies and what have you. You know, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be shaming people for liking something that they like, you know? For sure. I mean, that's, that's really a comic store thing. I mean, when comic stores first came into being, we, I think every comic store had, if not the owner as the Simpsons comic store guy, you had some, someone sitting or hanging out in that store who was willing to, you know, run you down if you liked uh, a specific comic or if you didn't like X-Men or if you didn't like, you know, I mean, it was just, that's, that seems somehow part of fandom, uh, which is just amplified, I think, with the, uh, the internet. It's uh, that person who's probably why Superman didn't sell more in the store. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it wasn't they, cool they enough. judged it. And it's possible, again, that's a guy who didn't read it. You know what I mean? Uh, just basing it on a, a judgment of, I don't like this character or this character's old hat or, you know, it's not relevant anymore or whatever. 
those are, if that's the guy who's ordering the, the, the copies, he's not going to be promoting it to his customers. <laughs> so No. Yeah. I'll ask one last question. This one's for me, though. Um, how did you... Like, how did you end up doing the Power Shazam, like the original graphic novel? Like, how did that get pitched? And again, you're coming off of Superman. You've been very successful with Superman, but now you're going to be, you know, doing kind of everything on this book. Um, did you always love Captain Marvel? Like, what was it about this character that kind of led you to kind of do everything and really push it through and make it a high quality book? Well, the the biggest answer is that no, I didn't really know that much about it. I'd read the revamp or the relaunch in 19 early 70s I'd read those I always liked the costume and uh, I just really they never put a lot of thought into it and what happened again like a lot of things it's other stuff didn't happen that made paved the way for me doing it it, it was originally um, I was working away on Superman I was happy on Superman <clears throat> I was uh, newly married and my wife and I were expecting our first child. So I was thinking of wanting to get off of the monthly writing and drawing grind. And my Carlin had said I could still write the book and that would free me up to do projects that, you know, like a graphic novel or what have you. So Jonathan Peterson called me up when John Byrne quit. Byrne had done a couple pages, physical, had drawn two pages, I guess, of uh, Shazam. And then he had like a, justifiable DC blow up um, over him doing a revamp and then the original version of Shazam actually appearing at the same time as his would have come out in War of the Gods Mm. and DC really didn't have a way out of that so they basically decided with War of the Gods and John said okay I'm done so Jonathan Peterson had this and he said you know he really talked me into it he just said you know, we can do it, and we can do it like the, you know, Captain Marvel serial, which was, you know, actually pretty groundbreaking, but, you know, not as useful as a template for a comic, because it's pretty pretty weird. I mean, it's a it's a really good serial, but it's it's very violent, and Captain Marvel throws people off of buildings and stuff. <laughs> it's kind of crazy <laughs> if you watch it now. But um, but what he and I had envisioned, and he, he and I, we, we used to go to movies all the time, so he and I had really loved Indiana Jones, and that Indiana Jones had that warmth, uh, the color, it was very, very uh, warm, uh, lots of oranges, lots of desert stuff, a lot of, you know, it just had a, a, a look to it. So Jonathan said, if you do it, you color it, you can, you know, do painting, whatever you want, and uh, so it's going to be a you know prestige book. It's going to be a hardcover. All these things were, were like the next step for me. Like, oh, yeah, that would be great. Because, again, things weren't normally collected back then. So you didn't really get trade collections of books. It was, you know, you did a comic book. And the month after that comic was out, it really wasn't going to get seen again unless somebody bought a back issue. So that was something that was always in my brain. I, I mean, I like that, you know, Dark Knight had been its own thing and, and uh, Watchmen had been its own thing and, and you know these things were that was I wanted something like that for me something that I could you know just actually do in full color because I you know always had an interest in, in painting and things so I really wanted to just if I could do something like that so that was the whole impetus for doing it really was you get an opportunity to do a standalone origin story 
doesn't have to have a tie-in, nobody crossover. You know, I mean, there's, it, there's nothing, it's its its own thing. Um, it can be on a shelf for a year, it could be on a shelf for five years, whatever, but it was going to be its own thing, and I was going to write and draw it. Whereas at, on Superman, as much as I had a lot of ideas, and a lot of my ideas made it through, Superman is a, was a different thing. It was a collaborative, um, you know, like a commune of artists and writers in a sense. There were people who led on stories and, and things like that, but ultimately it's almost like a group think, and it's hard for any one person to just go, I did this, I did that, because, you know, everybody pitched in things, even though we all individually did our own books on our own, everybody pitched in ideas and stuff. So, so doing a book after several years of working in that kind of group situation, it was a way also to prove myself, I guess, and to have something that just had my name on it. Hmm. So um, once I started on it, I had, you know, Jonathan was a really good advocate for me because the way color books were done back then was that you would draw a line art and they would photograph the line art and they would do a blue line and you would color the blue line with whatever medium you want. Could be watercolor, could be, you know, solid color paints, you know, opaque paints, whatever. And then the line art would print over that color almost like an animation cell. Mm-hmm. That's basically the best way to put it. And I said, no, I want to do full color pages and I don't want to have to do blue lines. I want it to be, that's the page. So that was a big fight, but once they agreed to it, they figured out how to make it work, you know, because we didn't have Photoshop back then. So you, you know, you had to, seriously, you had to do different photographic things to make sure that the black plate printed black or that, because there was no black plate. There was just a black, you know, in, in a, if you take a photograph of something, of a painting, the black in a photograph is going to tend to somehow be washed away, so it's not going to have the same vibrancy as a black on a, a line art piece that where the black is a separate plate, like in a comic, regular comic page. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big deal for them. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't, <clears throat> I mean, it was, it was all kind of new, and it was definitely me learning while I was doing it as well but uh, um, yeah it was a really fun project to work on and it was very it was very well received and it sold really well and it was in print for a long time I mean it, it, it we came out in 94 no I mean uh, yeah 94 I think no was it 95 and I think it was 95 like January 95 mm-hmm. and it was in print through about 2000 and I want to say eight, 2009. And that thing went through about eight or nine printings. So it was, you know, year after year, it sold pretty well. I mean, I, I used to get a decent royalty um, uh, pretty much every year for that. It, it, you know, it was a good, whatever, a backlist uh, book, I guess, for DC. So it was always kind of a little disappointing that it did finally go out of print, but uh, I guess they're finally gonna do uh, they're going to include that along with the Power Shazam series uh, in a series of hardcovers, I think, starting in 2020. So oh, are we getting that in hardcover? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand. I mean, again, I don't know the business part of it. I kind of feel like I would just like to see it published, and I would like to see it successful enough that they can that they do the whole series. So it feels kind of like hardcover. If the orders don't come in high enough, then what happens, you know? I mean, does it become an omnibus? I don't know. I, I just would rather have it be a series of, of collections than 
two omnibuses, you know? I just don't like the idea. The omnibuses are very unwieldy, but they're also just, to me, they don't feel story-friendly. They That's feel true. Like, uh, like a big bargain. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think when you, when you collect something that organically fits as a story, whether it's six issues or ten issues, it's better to have as a single volume, just as a, from a reader's point of view. That's how I would prefer it. So I don't know what the... Again, I, I'm, I'm still... They're still working on things with that, and I'm hoping that we can get them to reprint along with that. There was a story that I did in between the graphic novel and the regular series that we did for the Batman Superman newsstand magazine that oh, yeah. Mike Arabeck inked, uh, penciled, that Rick Burchett inked, that was like a really fun, and it fits continuity-wise. It's closer, Billy's age is closer to what he was in the graphic novel which was around 10 or 11 or something whereas by the series he's you know in middle school high school something like that I think we tried to play it like 14 15 or whatever but uh, this other the, the, the story that Parabek drew is just a really fun little story that I wrote that again fits right in that almost like it could be you know tacked on to the graphic novel in a sense even though it's more in the uh, Superman Batman cartoon style hmm. but, when, uh, when you, my final question I promise uh, when no, okay. when you did the Power vs. M graphic novel at what point was the conversation about we're going to have a regular ongoing coming out of this um, they were they always wanted that but I hadn't really committed to it I wasn't going to do it initially because I really felt like I mean, here's what happens when you don't really have... I mean, I went through this with Superman as well. I knew the character in basic, you know, the basic beats of the character, but I didn't love the character in the same way that you do after you work on it and you invest your personality and whatever, you know, into, into doing the stuff. So you wind up falling in love with a character, which is, I think, better than going into it loving a character, you know, which would have been my issue, I think, if I'd gone... If I had, had stayed with Marvel and done a long stretch with Marvel. I had such love for the run, different time frame, you know, and storylines that I'd read as a kid that I think I would have been too close to it. And the, the advantage to, in me approaching Superman the way I did was I really loved the Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, the first one. That was my whole impetus, was whatever that movie had in it that that kind of was my love of that character. I had very little knowledge of any of those stories or any of the villains outside of Luther. I didn't, but I learned it. And in learning it, you wind up going, oh, this is great. This is my stuff. You know, I mean, it gives you respect for it. With Shazam, when I did the graphic novel, since it just, enta- in, 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 it just entails his origin, it's almost like a, a short period of time in there. I felt almost like, okay, here's my you know, Republic Pictures, Captain Marvel serial, or Indiana Jones and the you know, Raiders and the Lost Ark, that type of thing. Here's my my start. Someone else who knows all the Shazam and Captain Marvel lore might be better as the writer of something like that. And they just kept saying, no, you, you know, I think you should do it. So I had to do a lot of study. <laughs> I really had to, I bought a microfilm reader because DC didn't have any, um, 
continuous runs of any of the of the uh, faucet stuff because they had just recently had purchased the whole thing. It wasn't like they had owned the character for decades, so they didn't have um, any old comics in their library that they had bound into books or anything. There was like maybe a couple of scattered volumes of things that they'd gotten bound, but they didn't have anything from the very beginning. So I found that on microfiche, on microfilm. <clears throat> Somebody had Wiz Comics from one to, you know, 80 or something like that. So I just started studying and writing notes and, you know, kind of piecing together what I wanted to do with it that way for, for the series. But uh, but the series was originally supposed to spin out of Zero Hour. Hmm. And uh, I had inked Zero Hour, of course, but it was going to be one of the Zero issues was going to, you know, was going to spin out of it. And Mike Waringo... Waringo was going to be drawing it so everything was being set up for that eventuality and then um, uh, after I I mean I think I'd written the first plot the first issue plot Mike decided to work for Marvel so Mike went and did the Rogue miniseries I think instead oh yeah and uh, so we didn't we didn't have an artist so we wound up missing that uh, zero hour launch which is why it wound up coming out after that point um, a couple months or six months later. I don't remember it was six months, but it was definitely a, a period of time after that. <clears throat> we had to, you know, find an artist. So, but, it, you know, that changed it as well, I think, in a way, because maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't think anything, you can't predict what one thing would have been better or worse. I think ultimately, you know, it still has to stand on its own. And um, the biggest thing that kind of hurt the book, in my estimation, and I, I'm sure other people have opinions, but um, it was a strong. It, it sold. It, the, the, the initial issues sold really well, but by issue six, that's when Diamond was the only distributor left standing. Um, mm. Issue one through five, we still had Capital distributing, and Capital pretty much handled the Midwest, and the Midwest was always like a, a stronghold. I think a fan stronghold. Or Superman, obviously, in those days, and when we were first on Superman and Shazam, I, I think the Midwest had a more fondness somehow for the the classic, you know, DC and obviously Fawcett characters. So up until the time when we had two distributors, <laughs> we were selling great. And once Capital went bankrupt, those orders never got um, made up by Diamond alone. In other words. A, for example, we sold, I think, say 50,000 from each distributor. Mm. And then once it's just diamond, we, we sold 50,000. And then, you know, maybe 60, 65, but we never regained that whole uh, um, other half. And that was tough because, you know, it was an era right in 95, that would have been 95. There was a lot of stores had closed as a result of Diamond. You know, like when, I mean, uh, when Capital went out, this is all history that people don't probably remember or care about, but Capital Distributing, you know, serviced probably several hundred at least stores, probably more. When they went out of business, those stores that were Capital accounts couldn't get terms with Diamond except cash. They couldn't get 
credit terms. Like if you were, you know, a diamond customer in good standing, you pay for the books after they're delivered. Well, stores that with capital could only get credit with diamond, not credit. They had to pay on like COD. So a lot of stores could not do that. So it, it was a, it was a really tough situation, and we never really recovered. I think a lot of DC books, probably Marvel books as well, probably suffered um, during that time. But uh, I think Shazam probably a little more than others. Maybe even some of the other books that would have had that kind of same, you know, retro quality or, or what have you. Um, and again, again, that's that was even though we we still sold well for a period of time. I think we just we took a big hit early on that kind of. I think put, you know, maybe a little marker on our back that, uh, oh, this isn't successful, you know, rather than, wow, everybody was really thrilled for five months and then suddenly through no fault of our own, half the market went away, you know? So, but uh, but it sold, it still sold pretty solidly. It was always in the, like the good solid middle seller, <clears throat> you know, up until, you know, even into the, uh, the issue 40, 41, 42, but then DC wound up announcing, I don't know if they announced it or it slipped, but somebody screwed up and, and, and Wizard got hold of the, oh, Shazam's going to be canceled. And they they played that news up in the summer at the Chicago Con in 98. And unfortunately, there were still like six issues left to come out and be solicited. So there were like at least four issues to be solicited. So that, that never helps when someone, you know, it's like, oh, the book is canceled. So the orders for those last bunch of issues that solicited through Diamond were obviously people cut their orders because there is like rats jumping off of a sinking ship. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm not, comp- I'm, I'm not complaining. It's all water under the bridge. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it, but it just, it always felt like that was an unfortunate, you know, blip in time, and I know it's probably nothing compared to people losing their comic stores and whatever they had invested in it, and the people at Capital even. I mean, it was just a, it was a tough time for the market, you know. For sure. Well, I hate to leave it on a down note. <laughs> um, Sorry, it's okay. I don't so, think it, I don't think of it that way. It's just, I mean. You know, history is, is what it is. You, know, you can't control it. I think it's it's cool. And again, it, this is it's gratifying for as much time as I spent on Superman. And I'm very proud of the stuff. And I, I made, I, you know, spearhead big stories on Superman. I can't, uh, you know, Lois and Clark got engaged pretty much because of me and uh, a bunch of other things that happened. I still find it interesting that so many people remember the Shazam stuff favorably and really don't even remember my connection with Superman as much, you know? Oh, yeah, were you on Death of Superman? It's like, yeah, well, that was kind of part of our idea, you know, but, so, I mean, I think there's something to, you know, the the fact that people who did read the book like the book, so, I mean, that's that's gratifying, and, and uh, I'm proud of it. It was the most fun, I think, it really was the most fun thing I ever did, you know, in, uh, as a monthly because it was uh, it was just a very f- I mean my audience really was my editor you know and at that point like Jonathan had left DC before the regular series he'd left for Wildstorm and was their first outside editor up there at Wildstorm um, and Carlin took over the 
the planning of the monthly. Um, but every month with Mike was fun because Mike was my audience, technically. You know, I would throw in stuff to make him laugh. <laughs> I would throw in stuff that I knew he'd get a kick out of, but I was also throwing in stuff that I, that I wanted to do, and he was a good receptive editor and audience. And, um, and he did a lot of work helping promote that thing, too. I mean, we did the Mr. Mind story in that second year of the book, <clears throat> and he and Chris Duffy was the Chris was the assistant editor. We I created an alphabet, um, which John Costanza actually visualized an alphabet for Mr. Mind's Venusian uh, language or whatever, and we threw you know like those coded messages or, or coded dialogue and things like that in the uh, book, and they and it was meant that you could read it without knowing and it would be fine. But if you really wanted to know what Mr. Mind was saying, you could send in for the decoder card. Well, Mike and, and Chris printed these things out on DC's printers and cut them, hand cut them. You know, like, I think they must have done like maybe four of them per sheet. And they couldn't keep up with, I mean, they, they got no help from anybody at DC. They could barely keep up with all the requests. They sent out hundreds of these things. Wow. You know, including the, the funniest one, he, he, Carlin got a request, a little letter with a stamped envelope from Harlan Ellison. And Harlan <laughs> Ellison was kind of like grudgingly going, God darn it, you guys made me, you know, like I think I'm a kid again. I have to send in for a damn decoder card. <laughs> <laughs> Which was was, a, was really a riot. That was really funny. So I, I had a, uh, a nice conversation or two with, with Harlan during the course of that. Uh, it was just, it was just it was fun. It was a nice, you know, a little bonus or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, that promotion was huge. And, and again, DC didn't help except to off, you know, Mike using their printer. But uh, that's why people had to send in stamped, self-addressed stamped envelope because there was no budget for it. But, uh, but again, hopefully that de- decoder card winds up in the, uh, the tray as well. You know, because yeah. it seems like, you know, part of the part of the little fun history with it. But uh, we also won a Parents' Choice Award for the first year uh, when the book launched, which was was something DC totally downplayed because they didn't they didn't like the idea of anything that you know wasn't cool if the parents liked it. <laughs> it was just the funniest thing. I was like, hey, you know, a movie gets a Parents' Choice Award, they take out an ad. They say, hey, Parents' Choice winner, whatever. You know, mm. DC just totally ignored it. It was it was really crazy. So, but I have the uh, I have the award in my file somewhere. It was just it was just funny. It's like, okay, so there's you know there's DC is not going to use this to help sell copies because it's reinforces the idea that maybe you know people would actually buy a kind of lighthearted book that's not really grim and gritty at the time. <laughs> so too funny. Well, Jerry, it was thank- fun. It was it was a it was a fun exp- experience on that anyway. So I hope that hopefully that brought the, uh, <laughs> the uh, thing from being depressing at the end <laughs> absolutely it did no thank you so much again i can't i can't thank you enough for spending so much of your time with me today and i had more questions and a lot we, there's a whole swath of your history we didn't even go over so maybe we can have you back in a couple of months but uh if, sure. if, if you're open to that but thank you so much i really appreciate all of your time oh no problem thank you very much